Welcome to Citizen. 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 Citizen Science. Citizen Science Show. Tonight we're here with Alex Chapman from the Australian Citizen Science Association's chapter in Western Australia. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Ian. There's two questions I normally start off with. Have you ever been scuba diving? No, my daughter goes scuba diving. I mean, she married a very uh, active scuba diver. Would you like to go one day? I, I sort of would. I go diving a little bit around Rottnest in WA. I have to really control my urge to just spin around looking for sharks, <laughs> creating a whirlpool. <laughs> oh, well, that's not a bad urge. To have spinning around looking for sharks? Well, yeah. What? Is it that you're here for at the conference? So I've been the uh, AXA WA chapter chair for two years now. I guess I've had a sort of a long history of engagement with uh, citizen science, even before it was called that, uh, when it was just called volunteering. I'm a botanist, a taxonomic botanist. I worked at the Botanic Gardens in Sydney in the herbarium for five years. Back oh, wow. In the 80s. And then moved to Western Australia and got a research scientist position at the Western Australian Herbarium. I worked there for for about 25 years and it was a really interesting time. The 90s we were starting to database. We were liberating the data on those dried plant specimens, digitizing the label data into a database, digitizing or formalizing the transfer of the state's census of plant names into a database. We had a project that was in a way a citizen science project uh, because it was funded by the Lotteries Commission of Western Australia at the behest of the Wildflower Society of Western Australia who are effectively a great citizen science lobby group for the flora of Western Australia which as you know is incredibly biodiverse. It's one of the 34 biodiversity hops plant hotspots on the planet. Oh, really? Yeah. So um, there's a lot of stuff going on. When you were a little boy, and were you like this? Were you very curious about the natural environment? The first thing I remember about plants was my mum taking me through the garden. I was probably seven. And she showed me a little plant she was growing near the mailbox called, uh, well, I don't know the name of it to today, but it was called Pussy Willow. It has beautiful furry buds that look a little bit like the pad of a cat. Oh, yeah. You know, and beautifully soft. And I remember that moment when I went, okay, this is a plant and it's got a name and it's got these really identifiable features. And I think that was the first time that I was sort of turned on to the idea that things are different, you know, there's lots of different plants, just like there are lots of different animals. From that moment, did you sort of like have any natural heroes or people that you looked up to, inspirations that got you onto that path? Well, my first choice, you know, I did averagely at high school. I was in the smallest boys' public school in Sydney. <laughs> Whereabouts in Sydney? Yeah, Boys High School. Oh, okay. It doesn't even exist anymore. <laughs> it was that small. But I went to the University of New England and I started doing agricultural, they call it rural science. I also became vegetarian during that period because, you know, it was the end of the 70s and Australia being slow, you know, it was still a bit of a hippie culture. <laughs> so, <laughs> so after a couple of years of doing rural science, I went, I'm not interested in learning about animal anatomy or dissecting frozen half sheep's heads. I took a year off, played music around town, went back and just signed up for a botany course because I could handle botany. Didn't have animal cruelty or all that stuff going on. And I really enjoyed it. And when I left, I started volunteering at the Botanic Gardens in Sydney at the National Herbarium there. And within about eight months, I got a research assistant position working on the, at the time, it was called the Apacridaceae, the uh, southern heath plants, the southern equivalent to Heather. Oh, interesting. I guess. From there, where did you 
go from there? Well, I found that I really enjoyed the whole process of identifying new species because uh, there are many new species to be discovered, particularly in Western Australia. It's still quite a new frontier. I mean, England, for example, has 2,000 species. We've got that in the Perth Hills. And they celebrate the fact that there's a new species subspecies of uh, an algae found once every 10 years in the UK. I was the uh, editor of the Systematic Journal of Western Australia for about five years. One year we published 100 new species of plants. Really? Yeah, and I think the average is probably 40 per year new species. Wow! Yeah, so that gives you some idea. Yeah, yeah. And that's just in that one journal. There are national journals in other states which also publish Western Australian taxa and also international journals. So, you know, the accumulation of new species and the rearrangement of new species into different genera thanks to molecular work there's a lot of churn how important is the citizen science movement in finding these different new species oh look it's a mix because you have different levels of engagement it's probably relatively rare that a general member of the public recognizes that something is new i mean that's quite a skill yeah that's right you have to know a whole genus to know that this thing is different to the other 500 species in the genus or 50 species so that's quite skilled but we have of course highly qualified volunteers fred and jean hort for example are a preeminent couple and a great example of citizen scientists in Western Australia, primarily botanically, but also they have discovered new species of insects as well, so they're quite into the whole pollination thing. And there are probably, at a rough guess, about 10 species of plants that are named after Fred and or Jean Hort. So something Hortii or Hortiora, <laughs> they're uh, species names that acknowledge the contribution that they've done by naming that plant species after them. Oh, wow. And the Wildflower Society there is magnificent. Such dedicated people with immense knowledge, often a lot more than the average botanist in the government system in West Australia. Oh, can I say that? Yeah, you can. (laughs) Do they pass their knowledge on to the next generation of people that are interested? They do in certain respects. I mean, by the fact that they vouch for their material at the West Australian Herbarium or the West Australian Museum, depending. So that knowledge is vouched into the future. I mean, Herbaria have material going back hundreds and hundreds of years. We have specimens, even though Cook never came here, we have a few specimens donated by the uh, Natural History Museum, I think, uh, of... Cook and Solander's voyage. Oh, really? Or Banks and Solander, if you like, um, from 1770. Uh, The first Australian specimens that are vouchered and lodged were captured by the buccaneer William Dampier in 1699 at Shark Bay. Oh, really? So a full 70 years at least before Cook and Banks and Solander discovered the East Coast. So Western Australia has a great historical history in terms of the scientific discovery. And the French are a major part of that as well, of course. Oh, wow. That's that's amazing. Sorry, did I go off topic there? No, no, no. <laughs> it's a actually fascinating topic. People were coming and going from that coastline before they got round to the east coast. Yeah, that's right. You look at the old maps and Van Diemen's Land. They had the west coast pretty sorted out and then how somehow it connects with Tasmania, which somehow connects with this gap up to Queensland. <laughs> <laughs> took a little while to work out. So, I mean, I guess to answer your original question, how does that knowledge get passed on? Vouchering material, of course, and the contribution to scientific papers, the images. I mean, Jean particularly is a fantastic uh, photographer. Imagery is increasingly important in species identification if they can be liberated. And we heard some talks today about how you need to make your imagery available in the Creative Commons so that it can be reused as widely as possible. What are you hoping 
to get out of this conference this week? I guess there's two basic things. One is learning. So there's a lot of knowledge sharing going on about where we are, what's the state of the art of citizen science across Australia. We have people coming from Los Angeles, yeah, for example. Yeah. We have uh, people coming from New Zealand who are giving fantastic talks. We had a fantastic video this afternoon from a woman who was talking about the European Citizen Science Network and the latest initiatives that they're achieving over there. A big part of that is how you build citizen science into the policy infrastructure and departmental funding infrastructure across the planet, but especially in Australia now. Europe is really setting a model for that. Oh, is it really? Mm. Australia is quite an early adopter in a lot of things, and that's one of the features of being Australian, I think. You know, we, we uh, like tech and we like knowledge and we often adopt things quite early on. And we give things a go. We give things a go, mate. That's right. <laughs> but, I mean, we live in this fantastic world where uh, data can be digitized and visualized and put on the internet so anyone in the world can see it. There's so many great citizen science projects which co-opt that accessibility now to really build knowledge, accrete knowledge on top of the baseline data into really significant information. And in Western Australia, is there any major projects going on that citizens can get involved with? There's a lot. Is there, really? Oh, absolutely. I mean, as I said, uh, the southwest of WA is uh, one of 34 biodiversity hotspots, and the people know that. They well understand that they're in a special part of the planet and they want to be involved. And the great thing about citizen science is you can find a local project, join up and contribute that data and ideally that data flows through as I mentioned from that very local record all the way through to being visualized nationally and globally so it's very powerful if it's designed well and the core of that of course is two things good engagement good project design and good data standards underpinning everything if you don't have good data standards that data can't flow easily through the system okay they're the three major components yeah there are many projects AXA the Australian Citizen Science Association part of their website has what's called a project finder. People doing citizen science can lodge their project into project finder and then people can query that and go, I'm in Albany in Western Australia. What citizen science projects are going on in my local area that I could sign up to because I want to contribute? That's one of the nice functions that AXA provides. I was actually very surprised to find that the Australian Citizen Science Association is run by volunteers. Yeah, we're all volunteers, except we have two positions part-time that we can fund through our somewhat meagre income. We have Lisa Evans who's moved to New Zealand recently, and Jesse Cappadonna. And they work two days a week each to facilitate all of the administrative work and document the work of the association. Do you do any other work apart from the association at the moment? I am a research associate back at the Western Australian Herbarium. Okay. I still have a few papers hanging around. I need to do a bit of uh, scanning electron microscope work on a new genus for Western Australia, a new plant genus, which is aligned to an Eastern Australian genus called Malicris, but uh, is significantly different in a number of ways. Okay. I need to complete that work. I also work as a botanical consultant, and I've been working out recently in the Yulgarn, which is an area of the semi-arid zone between Southern Cross and Hyden. Between the Southern Cross and Hyden. Hyden, where's that? So uh, Southern Cross, if you go along the Great Eastern Highway from Perth, it's about three quarters of the way to Kalgoorlie. Which is about three quarters of the way to the state border, probably, Ah. roughly. So it's semi-arid, poorly documented because it's 
a long distance away from the main population areas and it's been phenomenal. Working there for a whole year through the seasons, the six seasons, we were finding potentially new taxa every trip. Really? Yeah. There's a lot more to discover in Western Australia. I think there's 12,000 published species of vascular plants. The guesstimate we have at the Western Australian Herbariums is probably like 15,000. So there's still another 3,000 species of just the flowering plants oh, to wow. discover. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> it is. We could do ecotourism there. Well, that's been a big push. The Department of Biodiversity, Conservation and Attractions is the current name of the Conservation Department. The previous CEO came from the parks environment and he was big on ecotourism because national parks, of course, are sacrosanct in many ways because they preserve unique ecosystems and sets of species, assemblages, but we want people to see them as well. So he was quite big on ecotourism. It's a tricky thing, particularly in the southwest when you've got Phytophthora cinnamoma, dieback. So hikers coming into national parks with muddy boots. Yeah. It's a soil pathogen, so it's carried in the mud. You don't want to distribute something which destroys maybe most of the Proteaceae, a lot of the Myrtaceae, and other whole families. It attacks the roots and kills plants. Over time, massively reduces the biodiversity of particular ecosystems. So ecotourism is a difficult thing to manage. Yeah. So it's done sustainably. It's great that it gets people into the parks. It's great that they come to understand the amazing diversity there but it has to be done very uh, sensitively in an environmental way so that you're not introducing pathogens it's not that's tricky it is tricky do you have hope for the future well wow. <laughs> that's a big question isn't it it is back in 2005 when i was raising my teenagers at the time i found myself because, you know, when you're a scientist, you follow the scientific literature, and it was pretty much all doom and gloom. There were a couple of things that happened around that time, I think in the middle of the 2000s. There was the Stern report coming out of the UK, which was the first governmental report to really have impact and say we need to address climate change. And there was that movie by the vice president of the US. That was the first glimmer of hope I had. It's like, finally, the last 30 or 40 or 50 years of evidence that climate change was a reality and was happening and was happening at speed was finally being acknowledged at policy levels, governmental levels. But just prior to that, my kids would come to me going, oh, Dad, you're a botanist, and they're learning about climate change at school. What do you think about climate change, Dad? And I virtually had to lie to them. That's how I felt. I'm going, well, humans are very smart, kids, and... They'll work it out. But in my mind, I was going, we're doomed. And that was a very traumatic time for me to have to sort of not be truthful with my own children because you can't tell your kids that we're doomed. You can't do that. So I had to come up with some sort of positive spin. I guess that's part of my passion that drives me to do citizen science because that is addressing the issue. We are documenting the biodiversity we have. We are documenting the pollution on the beaches and the quality of water in the water systems. And the citizenry is stepping up and providing the real evidence that governments need to get their shit together. That's right. And you are one of the silent achievers that are actually doing this. And from me and all those citizens out there that are listening... Thank you for helping this movement along and getting people involved. Thank you so much, Ian. It was a pleasure to talk with you. You've been listening to Citizen. 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 Citizen Science. Citizen Science Show.